first, it's time for our regular update from inside the Canberra bubble. We can't mingle with Tingle, but I've promised you we'll do very well with our uh, body double by having a, uh, well, by being keen with Bernard. And we welcome him back to the Little Wireless program. Let me remind you, he's Crikey's political editor. And uh, just the other day, I was tweeting rapturously about his um, summary of the life and times of Scott Morrison. Now, the ABC launched its new political documentaries, Nemesis, uh, tonight. Did you happen to grab anything of the first ep? I watched um, uh, a bit of it as I could, Philip, and uh, the, the one of the, the big mystery really of, of the Abbott government, and I, I don't know the extent to which it's going to go into this, but um, the big mystery for me was always how could a man who was elected with, let's not forget, a landslide, 90 seats, uh, manage within less than two years to, um, to end up being turfed out by his own side of politics and then by the, the the election after the next one lost his seat it's it's remains probably even including John Howard the most spectacular fall in Australian politics and uh, it's it continues to fascinate me that that uh, that turbulent period of um, of politics that we had from 2009 through to uh, 2015 ended in such an ignominious way for Mr. Abbott. Bernard does uh, does he allow himself to be interrogated? He is uh, he's sitting this one out. He's declined to participate in this particular process. The ABC says he's the first prime minister not to uh, not to engage in this sort of retrospective <laughs> uh, uh, analysis. Uh, I can't say I, I blame him. I don't think. I don't think even with with some of the quotes from his own colleagues uh, uh, being uttered in the course of the program, I'm not sure that anything he said was going to uh, provide any sort of uh, uh, glow where um, uh, where any darkness uh, pervaded the account of other people. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I understand that John Howard looks very diminutive in a very large chair. Uh, <laughs> That's I. I'm not quite sure what whoever whoever designed that particular set or that particular shooting location was was trying for. But uh, I'm sure John Howard's not shrinking. I mean, he's, he's still out there busily <laughs> walking the streets of Wollstonecraft. Um, I'm sure he's uh, in in fine fettle, even if he's now getting on. As are we all, of course. Um, but um, it was uh, he, he offers some fairly trenchant observations about Tony Abbott uh, as well, so uh, they were quite interesting. Now, the bloke who will be the focus of the third and uh, final ep of Nemesis is, of course, our beloved Scott Morrison. All of the Scott Morrisons, perhaps, and uh, who announced last week that shock horror he was quitting Parliament after 16 years. Bernard, how much pain can, are we expected to stand? Um, I, I, I would like to – it was something that I tried to do in, in the obituary I wrote for him, the political obituary, I hasten to add, uh, was, was to actually try and provide some sort of, um, well, rounding for his, his time in politics, um, particularly his period as treasurer, which was actually quite economically uh, successful. And the, the, the observation that I've made, which is – an observation I've actually been making ever since the Turnbull government was that uh, Scott Morrison, for all that he may not have had 
much demonstrated capacity to understand uh, working women across Australia was actually one of the great empower, economic empowerers of working women uh, in recent times, courtesy of the massive increase uh, by historical standards in female participation on his watch. And uh, there was also the, the, the what I think is continues to be one of the few worthwhile achievements in Indigenous affairs in Australia in recent times, particularly in light of events last year. And that was the, the the shift in direction when it came to uh, closing the gap with Scott Morrison and Ken White actually investing in capacity building for Indigenous communities to really play a significant part in policy making. So I think it's important to to provide some of the, well, a couple of the positives, not actually very many of them, but at least a couple of the positives uh, before we single out what were the manifest failures of Scott Morrison's time as Prime Ministership? Well, as I said earlier, I retweeted that because I thought you did a, a terrific political epitaph. Of course, his uh, departure triggers a by-election. Yes, and that's – so we've got a couple of by-elections coming. We've got Dunkley, which is going to be in March, triggered by the, 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 uh, uh, the sad uh, uh, death of uh, a Labor MP – and then we're going to have Cook. At some point, we don't know when. Uh, the the there's been a lot of connecting of the Dunkley by-election uh, with the Albanese government's changes to its tax package last week. I think there's some some substance to that. I think Cook is going to be every bit as interesting. It's it's going to be a very interesting contest. I expect between new blood from the Liberal side, Scott Morrison's. Uh, held that seat ever since he managed to find a way to remove the pre-selected Michael Tauck uh, way back when in the Howard years. And I expect a uh, an interesting local independent candidate. And it's going to be interesting to see whether the quote-unquote Teal phenomenon still has legs and whether it's got legs in a different kind of electorate. Cook isn't, isn't North Sydney, uh, which is where I live. It's not Warringah. Uh, it's not, um, you know, it's not the kind of seats that we've seen Teal candidates be successful in, but it's uh, it may give us a, an insight into how uh, another kind of heartland Liberal seat is reacting to the leadership of, of Peter Dutton and, of course, uh, acting as a referendum on Mr Albanese's changes to the stage three tax cuts. I think we'll circle back to that. What do you think uh, ScoMo's legacy will be, particularly leaving aside his, uh, well, his significant achievements as Treasurer, particularly as Prime Minister? I, I think his legacy is to usher in a, a worse kind of politics. I think his government was, I'm not suggesting in any way that Scott Morrison was personally corrupt, but his government was the most corrupt government at the federal level in Australian history. Um, corrupt in, in the sense of soft corruption of a pervasive kind in which public policy was uh, debauched and was outsourced and made available to those who were prepared uh, to bid for it. Um, and who knows what the National uh, Corruption Commission will find in due course about other aspects of, of that government. Um, but the transactional nature, Scott Morrison once described himself to Nick Xenophon as, as I'm, I'm purely transactional, mate. And it was a very transactional government and public good public policy is not made by transactions. Good public policy is made by 
by actually knowing what you want to achieve and setting out to do it. And I'm still not sure what Scott Morrison ever wanted to achieve. You know, I find it a paradox that, uh, yes, you make the point he wasn't personally corrupt, but that he could head such a corrupt government given his religiosity, given the fact that he saw his election as a miracle, that he was, in fact, a sort of God's messenger. Well, look, look, plenty of our prime ministers have been religious. I probably probably guess most of them have been religious of one kind or another. Um, Scott Morrison was interesting in the extent to which uh, he was prepared to be open about his religiosity and the very personal aspect of it. Um, uh, this was a man who believed that God had basically personally intervened to give him the prime ministership in that miracle 2019 win. I think the responsibility probably lies more with Bill Shorten and Chris Bowen than with God, but that's a, that's a debate that, that others can have. But that very personal focus. And uh, what interests, always interested me about Scott Morrison's religiosity was not the, not the, 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 the a lot of, it generated a lot of criticism, which I thought was, was quite unfair. And a lot of singling out of Morrison I thought was quite unfair, but it was such a hodgepodge of different strands of Christian thinking, it was a. It was almost as if he cherry picked a wide variety of things. It, it was never this simple prosperity gospel that people like to accuse him of. It was. It was never anything like that. It was a much more, much more incoherent, inchoate uh, set of beliefs that I don't think ultimately really stood him in good stead for uh, for being prime minister. If if God wanted him to be prime minister. Uh, as I said, I'm still not really clear what Scott Morrison thought he was supposed to do with that prime ministership. American religious people, of course, see uh, see Trump as God's messenger, but Trump never suggests that himself. He doesn't seem to have a religious bone in his body. Now, colleagues, well, Angus Taylor comes to mind, praises his legacy, his big legacy, as including the AUKUS Alliance. Well, time will tell on that, won't it? I mean, the the AUKUS the AUKUS deal was announced as a as a basically as a as a as a press conference designed to wedge Labor. That was its that was its purpose. That was its utility. Uh, as it turned out, it didn't actually uh, have that result, but it's going to have hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, of, of consequences for Australian taxpayers. Um, over over the coming decades, in a sense, maybe that that observation is correct in a more broad sense. Because if there is a single economic legacy of Scott Morrison putting aside his economic empowerment of women, um, if there is a, a single economic legacy, I think it's around the fact that Scott Morrison and and Josh Frydenberg as as his treasurer uh, were the first to take Australia to. Uh, uh, spending of well over a quarter of GDP. Um, other government, we go back to the, going back to the Whitlam years, um, spending was around 18% of GDP. It crept up a little bit at the end of the Whitlam years, and it crept up further under Fraser, it crept up further under Hawking. It kept going up under government, under government. In the, in the Howard years, it sort of stuck around 20, 25 odd percent, but Scott Morrison pushed it to 27 percent and higher. And there it shall remain, I suspect, for a long time to come. We shall pass over his uh, lack of ability to read the room during the uh, black summer of bushfires. But how do you think he measured up as a leader during COVID? 
I think he was enormous. He benefited enormously from having a federal system in which much of the power, arguably most of the power, really lay with the state premiers. Uh, Scott Morrison got to control borders. He got to control uh, sections of the health and, and caring system that the Commonwealth had direct control over. So that was residential aged care. He had control over uh, when it, then they became available uh, vaccination sourcing and, and supply. Um, he got he controlled the COVID safe app or the use of IT technology to, to help us out. Each of those areas um, were, uh, in some cases, certainly in the case of residential aged care, an absolute disaster, an appalling disaster for which there's never been a proper accounting. Others were simple, standard, run-of-the-mill Canberra-style debacles like the COVID Save app. Uh, the real uh, successes, I think, in keeping Australia's uh, level of, of death and sickness down lay with um, uh, state premiers, Dan Andrews, Gladys Berejiklian, Anastasia Palaszczuk, Mark McGowan, who were prepared to actually lock down their cities and uh, and uh, deal with the pandemic that way and, and deal with it, as it turned out, compared to other countries, very do you, successfully. Do you think we've seen the last of him? I, In a funny way, I, I expect so. I, I, I talked about Morrison as a transitional figure. I frequently compared him to Boris Johnson and and Donald Trump, but th th there was always some significant differences. I think, I think Peter Dutton is a step closer to Donald Trump, and and if not so much Boris Johnson, uh, who's a kind of a you know a, a fairly sort of unique figure. But I think Peter Dutton is much further along the path toward the MAGA Republicans than than uh, than Scott Morrison was. And when and if Peter Dutton is successful, uh, I think we'll see quite a different government to the one that, that Scott Morrison presided over. What I fear, and this goes back to where we started with Tony Abbott, of course, what I fear is that like Scott Morrison, like Tony Abbott, uh, Peter Dutton won't have the competence to actually govern uh, successfully. I think that's been a, uh, a, a running theme of, uh, of uh, right-wing governments, both here and overseas, is a, a, you know, a poor level of competence when it comes to the basics of governing. What do you make of uh, the, the revision to the third phase tax cut policy? Well, they, look, look there, are, there are two issues. One is I think it's good policy. I think it's, it's, it will make the, the tax system as it will become from 1 July. It will make it fairer. I think it will have some economic benefits in terms of um, uh, encouraging uh, yet more uh, economic engagement of women, because the majority of those of that shift in the, the the benefits from high income earners to middle and low income earners is going to flow to women, because women occupy those lower uh, income earning deciles, as the Treasury advice talks about. I.e., there are more women uh, amongst the ranks of low and middle income earners. Uh, compared to high-income earners, so those benefits are going to flow to women. That's going to incentivise women uh, to uh, participate further in the workforce. So I think there's there is a strong argument for what Labor has done. But to move to the other issue, and it's one that has been poo-pooed and downplayed by a lot of progressives and a lot of Labor supporters, and that is this is a broken promise, and Labor should have made the case that it's making now back before the election. And the reason it's important is not just because this is a broken promise, but because Labor 
said specifically, we're going to be different. We're going to be a government that, that is going to restore trust in government. We're going to be reliable. We're going to do what we say. And people can, can make plans. They can rely on us keeping our word. It was Labor that made the keeping of promises a significant issue. And now they've turned around and said, well, we're actually going to change this because we think it's good policy. Uh, as I said before, uh, they could have made that argument before the last election. They could have made that argument very, very well. I suspect they still would have won the election if they'd made that exact argument, and yet they chose not to out of political cowardice. And I think that um, the you know we, we talk a lot about integrity in politics. We talk a lot about why people are alienated, why there's resentment, why there's grievance on the part of the electorate, why the people are flirting with uh, with uh, people from outside the political system, flirting with the Donald Trumps and the Pauline Hansons, etc. Well, this is one of the reasons why that happens, because people hear politicians make promises and pretty much know that they're not going to keep them. The government still faces the challenge of getting this legislation through Parliament. Does it look like they'll, they'll have the support of the Greens or not? I think they'll ultimately have the support of the Greens. The Greens are talking about making the cuts even more generous to low-income uh, earners. The The problem for the Greens is if they actually uh, block the legislation in the Senate in order to move amendments to it, Labor's going to jump up and down and say, look, the Greens don't want anyone to have uh, a tax cut. So I suspect it will sail through even with the, uh, even with the opposition uh, of the opposition, but that in itself is an interesting situation because, of course, uh, Peter Dutton's opposition doesn't want to be seen to be uh, the people who are trying to get in the way of low and middle income earners getting uh, a bigger tax cut. So they've got their own uh, difficult issue to deal with. It's all part of the the quite, I think, actually quite clever and and quite sneaky way that Labor's undertaken this right at the very start of the political year. Bernard, both you and I have followed the uh, trials and tribulations of Julian Assange. Next month, he has one final chance to uh, request an appeal of his extradition to the US. Do we know much about what's in, involved or how this appeal might uh, might go? Well, I'm, I'm no lawyer, but i got a little feeling this appeal has got more chance than previous ones because it's it's based on the the recent Rwanda decision by the British courts, which knocked out the government's the the Rishi Sunak's government's um, Rwanda policy, which is basically Tony Abbott's sort of you know a Tony Abbott style policy to to send um, to send uh, boat arriving asylum seekers off to Rwanda to there await the determination of of their status. Now the, the British courts. It effectively said, okay, you've got an agreement with Rwanda to do this, this, and this, but there's no guarantee that the Rwanda government is actually going to keep to its side of the bargain. We need something more than what we've got on offer. Now, the reason that's significant for, for, for Julian's case is that a similar situation applies to him. The US government is making certain commitments about what's going to happen to Julian uh, if and when he's extradited. Uh, on those extraordinary and outrageous uh, charges um, that have been levelled against him in relation to his journalism. And if if the British courts are now saying, well, it's not good enough simply for the British government to accept 
what another government tells it. It's got to have hard evidence of of the, that government, you know, undertaking the or, or you know, pursuing the commitments that it's made. Then uh, it's quite possible that the courts are going following that precedent to say, well, the British government simply can't just ex- take the US government's word for it in relation to what's going to happen to Julian Assange. So um, we'll obviously see what happens later in February, but I think we come back to the basic point, don't we, Philip, that the Australian government is the body that should be doing its utmost to get Julian Assange out of the situation that it's in and all of Tony Albanese and Penny Wong's quiet diplomacy, quote-unquote, so far uh, doesn't appear to have achieved um, any difference whatsoever. Well, beloved listeners, you can see why I'm keen on Bernard. Bernard Keane, political editor for Crikey, standing in for Laura Tingle as our Canberra correspondent. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.